Sola gratia means that what moved God to act to rescue us was solely this quality in God. It had absolutely nothing to do with what was in us. Salvation springs from what's in God, from the quality in God called grace. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you fully aware of the remarkable and dramatic change that God brings about in the life of a believer? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part 15 of a series titled, This Is Your Life. We've been studying Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. In this passage, the Apostle Paul describes how God rescues and saves an individual and how this rescue is entirely of God from beginning to end. And today, Tom will continue to develop and explain this dramatic change that has happened to all of us in Christ. God steps in. He grants life. He brings forgiveness. He brings faith. And He brings all the blessings that come through Christ. That's what God does. Is that your story, friend? Do you know why God accomplishes this dramatic change in the life of every believer? Let's join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. We've been talking about and studying the issue of salvation, of what God has accomplished in our salvation. When you think about it, the biblical statements about how we come to a right standing before God The biblical statements are completely at odds with everything in us and everything around us. We are born with an innate sense of confidence in our own capacity to earn the favor of God. If you don't believe that, ask the youngest children. They're born with, the they think, the ability to please God, to be good enough for God. They have to learn and be taught that, in fact, that is an impossibility. We're also surrounded by a culture that preaches to us the doctrine of self-esteem, that you can be anything you want to be, that you can do anything you want to do, and so in the end, we have these powerful forces both inside of us, our fallenness, and external to us, so that left to ourselves, we really would conclude that we are able to accomplish our own salvation or if we can't accomplish it entirely, that we can at least contribute to it in some way. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on Ephesians, tells the story of a liberal preacher who illustrated his view of salvation by telling of a frog, a frog who fell into a large milk can. And of course, as hard as he might try, the frog was unable to jump out of the milk, out of the can, and so he just kept paddling until, you know the end of the story, the milk turns into butter. And then he could jump out of the can by his own, from his own self-made platform. This unbelieving preacher said, that's how it is with salvation. You just keep working at it and working at it as hard and as difficult as it may appear, and eventually your milk will turn into butter and you will be able to extricate yourself from the mess that you were once in. Hughes makes the point that that frog is a perfect 
symbol of American religion. If you were to go to the average man on the street and you were to ask how that person plans to get to heaven, if he believes in heaven at all, you're going to hear most commonly an answer like this. Well, you know, that's a good question. I, I try to do the best I can, and I try to be a good person. I look out for other people. I work hard. I go to church. Sure, I have weaknesses and maybe even sins, but I'm not really a bad person. I think overall my good qualities outweigh my bad qualities, and when I stand before God and He puts them on the scale, He's going to find me, even with all of my issues, acceptable to Him. That is a horribly flawed view of God and of man, and it's a view that Paul is intent on utterly destroying in Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, as we will learn today, part of the reason God chose to save man the way He did was to humble human pride and to obliterate every possible ground for human beings boasting before God that their rescue, their salvation, has anything to do with them. We've been studying Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In this passage, Paul describes how God rescued us, a rescue that was entirely of God from beginning to end. Paul develops and explains this dramatic change that has happened to us. He begins in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2 by explaining what we were, what we were. He looks at what we were when God found us, and he describes a horrifically ugly picture of sin and slavery and death and wrath. In verses 4 through 6, Paul describes what God did. God intervenes, those beautiful words that begin verse 4, but God. And God steps in and He grants life and He brings forgiveness and He brings faith and He brings all the blessings that come with Christ. That's what God did. And then in verses 7 through 10 of this paragraph, Paul describes why God did it. Why God accomplished this dramatic change in us. Let me read for you this section. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. So that, there are those words of purpose. He did it so that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now in those verses, verses 7 through 10, Paul describes three great goals that God had when He decided to save us, and He decided to do it solely as an act of sovereign grace. God had a plan, and behind that plan, beneath that plan, were these three great purposes, these three great goals. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first of these goals. Verse 7 taught us that it was to display the glory of His grace, to display the glory of His grace. God acted in our salvation 
in order to set himself on display. He chose me in eternity past to be part of the grand demonstration in which he would put himself on display. He decided that saving me would show and display his amazing grace. And the same is true for you. Today we come to the second goal that lies behind God's unique plan to accomplish our spiritual rescue. And by the way, if you weren't here for the first, I encourage you to get that because that's so foundational. Go online and listen because it is, that is the cornerstone of everything else that we'll study in the rest of this passage, God's own glory. But today we come to the second goal that lies behind God's unique plan, and that is to destroy all human boasting to destroy all human boasting. And we find this in those familiar verses, verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. If you've been a Christian any time at all, you know these verses. In fact, most people, right after they learn John 3.16, learn these two verses. And they deserve their reputation, they deserve their popularity, because they are in many ways the clearest, most succinct summary of how God has accomplished the spiritual rescue of sinners that's found anywhere in the entire Bible. Paul alluded to salvation by grace back in verse 5. You'll see in parentheses that he says, by grace you have been saved. It was just sort of a parenthetical statement. And now he comes back in verses 8 and 9 to develop it more thoroughly. In these two verses, Paul is making one basic point, And it's this. God rescued us from sin in such a way that no one would be able to boast of anything before him. In other words, God planned for our salvation to be completely His work and none of ours with the goal of destroying all human boasting in His presence. Now, that may not seem important to you, but it better be. It ought to be because it's important to God. This is one of the two great, one of the three rather great goals God had in mind when He put together this plan of rescue. To make sure he's clear, Paul makes this point positively in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And then he restates the same point negatively, beginning in the middle of verse 8 and running through the end of verse 9. Notice all the knots in that second part of this passage. So he states it positively and then negatively, or To say it differently, the first half of verse 8 explains what we must affirm about salvation, and the rest of verses 8 and 9 explain what we must deny about salvation. This passage is the litmus test of a true Christian faith and of a true Christian gospel. Now let's look at what Paul says in this monumental text. First of all, let's look at the positive what we must affirm about salvation. Notice verse 8 again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. There is in that brief statement several specific truths we must affirm. First of all, salvation is a spiritual rescue 
accomplished by God. We must affirm that salvation is a spiritual rescue accomplished by God. You see this in the meaning of the Greek word translated here as saved. We've looked at this word before. It means to deliver, to rescue. And in its context, Paul is clearly talking about spiritual rescue. Remember back in verse 1, those who are dead spiritually. Verse 2, those who are enslaved. And those, the end of verse 3, who are deserving of eternal wrath. That's what we need rescuing from. He's talking about spiritual rescue. And notice the passive voice, been saved. The rescuer is not identified in verse 8. This is what's called the divine passive. The rescuer is clearly God. And in fact, if you look back at the subject of the sentence, remember, beginning in chapter 2, verse 1, and running all the way down through verse 10 is one long sentence in the Greek text. And the subject of the sentence comes in verse 4, God. God is the rescuer. So salvation is a spiritual rescue affected by God. Secondly, we must affirm with Paul that not only is salvation a spiritual rescue accomplished by God, but secondly, it is a past event with continuing results. A past event with continuing results. Look at the expression, you have been saved. Now, the key question is, what do we need to be rescued from? What do we need to be saved from? The short answer is we need to be saved or rescued from God, from His just verdict against us, and from the looming execution of the sentence that our sin deserves. But the Greek text says it in a very interesting way. In verse 5 and verse 8, the Greek text could literally be translated like this. You are having been saved. You are having been saved. Now that sounds strange to us, but the Greek text intended to emphasize, Paul intended to emphasize two basic truths here. One, that salvation was a past event, but that salvation has continuing results. It is a continuing reality. We could say we were saved in the past at a point in time, but the results of that event continue forever. That's why the New Testament speaks of our salvation in three tenses. Here, it's a past event. You have been saved. It happened in the past, and the results continue. This speaks of our salvation as deliverance from the penalty of sin that had been pronounced against us, from the guilt and penalty of sin. This counters the idea that salvation is a process throughout this life. It was an event in the past. You have been saved. If you're a Christian, it's in the past a reality, a past event. But the, the Scripture also speaks of our salvation as a present reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says that we are being saved. We are being saved. This refers to salvation as the ongoing deliverance from the power and practice of sin. In the past, as an event, we were saved from the penalty of sin and the guilt of sin. In the present, as an ongoing reality, we are being saved from the power and practice of sin. 
It's a process ongoing in our lives. This counters the idea that salvation is only a past event without repercussions on how we live today, a la the antinomians, those who are opposed to the law and who live, want to live however they want to live. A third tense that salvation is put in in the Scripture is a future certainty. Romans 5.9 says, We will be saved future. We will be saved from the wrath of God through Him. That means that when God's wrath is unleashed in the future, we will be rescued from it. We will be saved or delivered from it. This speaks of deliverance from the future display of God's wrath against sin and the very presence of sin itself. Understand, in the past, as an event, you were saved or rescued from the penalty and guilt of sin. In the present, you are being saved from the power and practice of sin. And in the future, you will be delivered or rescued from the wrath of God when it breaks out against all of those who are opposed to Him. Ephesians 2.8 is affirming the past reality of the event and the continuing results both now and to the future. You are having been saved. This is a summary of what God has done in our lives to rescue us. Thirdly, we must affirm that salvation is entirely by grace. Salvation is entirely by grace. This is the thrust of verse 8. For by grace... You have been saved. God saved us. He rescued us. Why? Because of grace. Because of something in His nature. Because He is gracious. Now what does that mean? Listen carefully because I don't think we fully grasp what Paul is saying often. There is in God, if you and I could see God, if we could see who God is and what makes God God, there is a quality that permeates the being of God that causes Him to delight in showing favor or doing good to those who deserve His wrath and His anger and His fury. Now think about that for a moment. There is a quality that permeates God that gives Him real pleasure, real delight in doing good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. And it was that quality and that quality alone that prompted God to act to rescue us. This is what the Reformers meant when they said salvation is sola gratia, Maybe you recognize that from the great cry of the Reformers. Sola is the Latin word for alone. Gratia, the Latin word for grace. Grace alone. Sola gratia means that what moved God to act to rescue us was solely this quality in God. It had absolutely nothing to do with what was in us. Salvation springs from what's in God. From the quality in God called grace. Pascal writes, grace is indeed required to turn a man into a saint, and he who doubts this does not know what either a man or a saint is. It is entirely by grace, because God is who He is, because He finds pleasure and delight in doing good to people like you and to people like me. 
The fourth truth about salvation that we must affirm is that it is through faith. It is through faith. Not only do we see that salvation is a spiritual rescue accomplished by God, it's a past event with continuing results, it is entirely by grace, but fourthly, it is through faith. Now, when the Scripture speaks about faith and salvation, it always uses one of two expressions. It either speaks of salvation being by faith or through faith. By faith emphasizes that faith is the means or the instrument that takes hold of Christ. Through faith speaks of faith as the channel through which salvation flows to us from God. But Paul uses both of those expressions synonymously. In fact, they're both used interchangeably in Galatians 2, 16. Salvation is by or through grace. Now, this is absolutely essential. Maybe you've never thought about this. Why is it important that it be through faith? Because salvation would not be by grace if it weren't through faith. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 16. He says, For this reason it is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. If it weren't through faith that we received it, then it would be our own efforts. It wouldn't be grace. And if it's going to be grace, the only way we can get it is through faith. They're, they go together as a package. They can't be separated. You see, faith, think of it like this, faith is merely the hypodermic needle that God uses to deliver the medicine of salvation to our souls. John Calvin said, faith brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. Spurgeon, in his excellent book, All of Grace, defines faith as believing that Christ is what He is said to be and that He will do what He has promised to do and then to expect this of Him. Now, I don't have time this morning to fully develop the concept of faith. I encourage you to listen to our study of faith if you haven't had the opportunity to do that. It was about a year ago on a Sunday night. We looked at it extensively. The Bible teaches us that there are three elements of saving faith. Three elements. Let me just briefly give them to you. If it's by faith, what does that mean? Well, there are three elements of faith. Number one is knowledge. Notitia is the Latin word. This is the in intellectual part of faith. It's the factual content of faith. Saving faith is always based on knowledge. You cannot believe what you do not know. Faith starts with divine revelation. You have to understand the truth. Paul says in Romans 10, how shall they have faith unless what? They hear the message about Christ. There has to be knowledge. Number two, not only knowledge, but assent. A census is the Latin word. This is the emotional element, the emotional response to the facts about Christ and salvation. This is being convinced that the knowledge you gained about Christ from the Scripture and about yourself is factually true and that Christ is what you need. Both of these are absolutely essential to faith. There must be a knowledge of the facts about Christ. There must be an assent to the truth of those things, but that is not saving faith. There is a third element that is required for it to be saving faith. It is trust or fiducia. 
This is the volitional response to Christ. And this, folks, is the heart of faith. This is the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. In fact, if I had time, I would take you back to a number of Old Testament references because this is the heart of Old Testament faith. Over and over again, the word trust is used. It's reliance. John Murray, in his excellent book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says faith cannot stop short of self-commitment to Christ. A transference of reliance upon ourselves and all human resources, that's trust in ourselves, to reliance upon Christ alone for salvation. This is faith. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 15 of his series, This Is Your Life. Tom will have part 16 for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.